0: Hello.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: Welcome to That One Couple Podcast, our third episode.
1: Third episode. This
0: is a special episode because Shane has been hard at work doing lots and lots of research for the past, what, week now?
1: Yeah, it's been about a week. Maybe a little bit more, like 10 days, I think. Yeah. This is about three days after we were... Uh, gonna do it on the this weekend, mm-hmm. but we had such an amazing vibrant podcast that we decided <laughs> to push it off a little bit and that yeah. was a great decision
0: well um anyways, we decided that um we wanted to do some special podcasts every once in a while so that we could use our history degrees and do research and talk about cool historical things and we're kind of doing it in like a dollop style i mean i'm we're not um by any means comedians <laughs> so we're not going to be as so entertaining or funny lower your yeah lower your expectations but um we're kind of doing it in that style as i have no idea what you're talking about like i have a vague idea um i know it's sports related mm-hmm. but other than that i've i've got nothing so go ahead
1: Uh, All right, everybody. Uh, So today's podcast is going to be a brief history um, about the Washington Football Team, currently the Washington Commanders. Uh, They're not my favorite team. I don't have any connection to the team per se. Um, I'm just very interested in their story through the perspective of their owners. Uh, They're actually a really easy team to follow in that sense. They've only had uh, three. Kind of for owners. And how owners can really form a team's identity and create or destroy their success, or sometimes how they can have these huge personalities and have these, which you would think would be detrimental characteristics, but how that cannot affect the team at all. So we're gonna talk about the Washington football team. We're gonna be talking about four owners, but we're really we're really gonna be concentrating on three owners. Now, before we begin, we just have to acknowledge a few things. This episode is going to be talking about some pretty serious topics. We're going to be talking about racism, we're going to be talking about Native American exploitation, we're going to be talking about the battle for Native American rights, and we are going to have some mentions of suicide in there. So if that's something that you don't feel like dealing with today, totally fine, no worries. I just wanted to give you all a warning beforehand. Um... In that note, since we are going to be dealing with things like racism, Native American exploitation and such, I do have to acknowledge that I'm uh, a straight, cisgendered, white male. The the horrors of discrimination is not something I can ever understand fully, and I have to acknowledge that beforehand. Um, What I'm trying to do is to make sure that these stories are told. I'm trying to make sure these stories are told, and I'm trying to make sure they are not silenced or forgotten. And the way I'm going to use my privilege in this case is by something that I'm really good at, which is research, which is studying the history behind people and how they have impacted discrimination and prejudice in history, and particularly, in this case, sports history. So before we begin, we are going to start with a land acknowledgement. We gratefully acknowledge the Native peoples on whose ancestral lands we gather, as well as the diverse and vibrant Native communities who make their home here today. And I think given the subject matter, uh, that's a really important thing to start the podcast with. Now... We're going to start with our first owner, George Preston Marshall, who was born in Grafton, West Virginia. Wait, in George
0: Preston Marshall?
1: George Preston Marshall. Not uh, George C. Marshall. George Preston Marshall. Where is this guy from? He is from Grafton, West Virginia.
0: I could have told you that.
1: Well, he's from Guess Grafton, sounded West...
0: like a good old boy.
1: Well, we're going to get to that part. Oh, sure. uh, he was born in West Virginia, but according to him, he was raised and conceived Ew. in D.C. His words. Ew. Um, He's like mommy
0: and daddy. <laughs> <that's> <laughs> they were having me in, in God's country.
1: That's what I read. <laughs> <laughs> this guy was an open book. He did not hold anything back, which is huh? great for okay. researchers. Not that great for him. Mm. Uh, so growing up, he wanted to be an actor. Uh, but he was drafted in the Army, although he never left the United States during World War One. And then when uh, his service was over, his dad died in 1919, and so he took over the family business, which was called Palace Laundry. Mm-hmm. And he had a real knack for marketing and advertising. Uh, One example that I found was that he took out a page in the newspaper that was just a clear white sheet. And then at the very bottom, there was letters that say, this space was cleaned by Palace Laundry. Mm. Uh, He had something called, uh, uh, what was it? Linen, life and laundry. He had a very, very good use of marketing and advertising, and that got him a good amount of success. Uh, When he sold the business in 1946, he had 57 stores after starting with just the one. Now, he dipped his toe into uh, sports ownership when he uh, started a minor league basketball team called the Washington Palace Five. Um got to make it so Palace Laundry, Palace 5, anything of the same thing. Exactly. Wait,
0: so he he went from laundry to to basketball
1: kind of yeah he you know like
0: what i he, i just want
1: to know like where he, why he took that leap well he wasn't always like a big sports guy he was kind of like mm. a, a like a medium fan he was more of a fanfare kind of guy he's more of a band and stuff like that so he saw an opportunity in entertainment mm. pretty much okay. remember wanted to be an actor so entertainment was kind of how he saw it gotcha now uh that league folded in like two years But in 1932, he has this other opportunity, and that's to buy an NFL franchise. So the NFL at this point was really floundering. There's only seven franchises left. They had started in 1920, and they had gotten a, a good amount of success, like never a great amount of success. They had a tough time competing against, like, baseball and college football. Those were really the popular sports. And then the Depression just really hit and really hurt the team. So NFL owners were looking for anybody else who could buy a franchise, who had some good ideas, some good marketing skills like George did. And so they offered him the franchise and he had to make two payments. He had to make a $1,500 franchise fee and a $1,500 fee that he would stay in the city that the franchise started in. Mm-hmm. In his case, it was Boston and they started off, started off rather as the Boston Braves.
0: Uh, the Boston Braves. The
1: Boston Braves.
0: No, Boston.
1: Boston Braves. No, Boston. Boston.
0: No. Boston. <laughs> You're saying Boston with a New York accent. Uh, Boston. No. <laughs> Boston. Thank you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was just testing you, baby, no, that whole time.
0: You weren't. Boston. Basin.
1: Basin (laughs) Basin-yad. (laughs) Harvard-yad. It's okay. My dad was born in Chelsea. Margaret.
0: (laughs) It's okay. My parents are from the East Coast.
1: (laughs) 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 Now, about those fees, uh, he never actually paid either one of them. Okay. Um, He just promised to underwrite the losses for the team and they gave him the franchise. Like I said, they're really desperate just to get people with money and ideas into the league. So they never had, asked for it.
0: Wait, so they're desperate to get people with money, but they're like, nah, you don't have to pay, it's Well, well
1: they <laughs> wanted franchises so they would kind of, you know, grow the league and more people would attend oh, okay. and then they could have a long-term strategy for gotcha. it. Gotcha.
0: But wait a minute. He just had a team that folded after two years, so where are they getting all this, like, oh, he's successful. Like, what?
1: Yeah, he's a great marketer. He's a great advertising mm. That includes advertising yourself. Mm. And...
0: Can't wait to see how that pans
1: out. No, <laughs> uh, Now, just to give you an idea of how crazy this is so the Houston Texans were the last franchise to be started in the NFL. Teams have moved, obviously, but they're the first new team that needed to pay a franchise fee. And in 2002, their franchise fee was $700 million. So if you wanted to get a franchise now, it would be well over a billion dollars. So him getting this for free is you know, a huge, gigantic property of incredible inherited wealth that he had. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason why they were called the Boston Braves is because... NFL teams at this time did this weird thing where they would name themselves the same as the baseball team. And there was a Boston Braves baseball team back then. And then this is the same Boston Braves. So it eventually moved to Milwaukee, become the Milwaukee Braves, and eventually moved to Atlanta and become today's Atlanta Braves. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, that's where the New York Giants come from. They were the New York football giants. They played in the polo grounds, the same as the baseball giants for a while. There was actually even a Brooklyn Dodgers football team which I found really surprising. Now, this obviously led to a lot of confusion. And uh, Boston, rather, was not a huge fan of football at that time, which is crazy to think of now. You know, they're all crazy, rabid Patriots fans. But back then, they really couldn't care less about football. Uh, They were more of a hockey town. They were more of a baseball town. Uh, One of the old executives I saw interviewed said that when they made the championship, the then Boston Braves, the... City didn't care at all. They actually put the women's hockey team making the finals as the front page news. So he kind of got the hint that he wasn't welcome there. Mm. And allegedly, his wife, um, Corinne Griffith, mm-hmm. who was a famous uh, silent film star and pretty big at her time, she was actually probably more wealthy than George when they got married. She used to command a hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars picture, which back in the 1920s was huge money. She came up with the idea to move the team to Washington, D.C. And she said it was, um, one, because uh, he was from there. And another was the idea was that there was a lot of transplants there. And, you know, there's not a lot of things to do on the weekends. You know, you can only see the same few monuments over and over and over again. So he thought there'd be a, an audience. Boston had a bigger audience, which is why they originally agreed to put the team there. But D.C. had a better audience, a better market, if you will.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And before he did that, he moved the team in 1937. In 1933, he changes the name from the Boston Braves to the to the then Boston, and then we're not going to say the name as we're going to talk about because that name is a slur. By any other name, it is a slur. So I'm going to say things like the Washington Football Team, the Washington Commanders, uh, DC, Washington, etc. Now, there's a few stories on why he changed the name from the Boston Braves. Wait,
0: sorry, sorry, sorry. So in 1933, mm-hmm. he changes the name to a to a slur. Yeah. What else was going on in 1933? There's so
1: many things. <laughs> uh, uh, seems like he
0: was uh, sticking with the times.
1: There was uh, a lot of advancements made in aeronautics. Um,
0: Someone was taking power in Germany.
1: Oh, oh, oh! That guy. I don't think he was a big football fan.
0: Um. Just a side note. Our dogs are on one tonight and because we are a small podcast we do not have a, a studio We're, we we really are limited on where we can film or sorry where we can do our audio um and our equipment and so sorry about the background noise but it'll have to be something that goes on for a while until we can upgrade our space
1: now, there are a lot of stories around uh, why he changed the name. The one that's cited a lot by uh, Washington's current owner, Dan Snyder, is that there was a coach on uh, Washington named Willie Lone Star Dietz. And the story goes is that Dietz was either part or um, completely Native American. He was completely Lakota was the story. Um, But some more research has been done on Dietz in the last two decades or so. And it turns out he... Probably wasn't Native American. Mm. This is a super, super interesting story that has a whole bunch of twists and turns. But basically, um, what we know for sure is that Dietz was charged in 1919 for falsifying information about himself, claiming that he was a non-citizen Native American and therefore wasn't eligible for the draft. Wow. Um, And remember, Native Americans weren't giving citizenship citizenship in this country until the 1920s so the idea was that you couldn't draft somebody into the army who wasn't a citizen so I'm proud to be an american we're at least i know i'm free so um what we know about Dietz because um, kind of a prototype fbi did a really detailed investigation of Dietz mm-hmm. um when these charges came up and he was born in rice lake wisconsin in 1884 And people knew his parents Uh, when he was born. His mother showed off a newborn baby and everybody knew that his parents were German descendants. Uh, His dad was one of the early settlers in western Wisconsin in 1874. He was a sheriff of the town. He met his mom. They... Um, had Willie, and then later on actually got divorced, which I know you think, like, divorce, the 19th century, that didn't happen, but Wisconsin actually had run a really early no-fault divorce back in 1866. So they got divorced. Um, Willie was uh, kind of on his own for a while, and I guess he quote, looked Native American. And so he got teased by a lot of his schoolmates and everything like that. Uh, He ends up going to... College at McAllister College in St. Paul. Oh, and before I uh, continue, all this is coming from an ESPN article from a guy named John Barr, who's getting a lot of his information from historian Linda Wagoner. And uh, she wrote a book on Dietz's wife, um, Angel Decora, who's a famous Native American artist and part of the Winnebago tribe. So, Dietz goes to McAllister College and he's um, uh, really an artist. He has all these sketches that have survived all these years later. He was also a pretty good athlete. And in 1904, he gets a project working at the St. Louis World's Fair for what was called the Indian School Exhibit. Basically making art and helping the kids there um, who were part of the um, schools at that time where Native American children were taken to um, help pretty much assimilate. Now, while he's there... Since he, and keep on, these, this is the 1904 World's Fair, if you're not familiar, this is a lot of them, this is when a lot of the pictures come from, where Native Americans were kind of put behind cages, and kind of put in these kind of zoo-like exhibits for people to gawk at, and things like that, and while there, Dietz meets his wife, and he meets a few other members of the Ogala uh, Lakota tribe, and kind of more or less passes himself off as Native American. Now, the reason why he can get away with this is that um, pretty much at this time, the authorities were really wanting assimilation amongst Native Americans. Mm -hmm. Um, William Pratt and I think it was Henry Dawes from the Dawes Act who had this idea of, uh, you know, kill the Indian inside, save the man. This is where you get, you know, um, Uh, Carlisle Indian School, you get all these schools that were meant to pretty much commit a cultural genocide of Native Americans, Mm -hmm. all with the purpose of assimilation. And so Dietz, who grew up white but looked Native American, uh, was just um, something that these people were really looking for, because he seemed to be completely assimilated Native American. So he was allowed to compete in the, um, what was called the Indian games at that time Mm -hmm. So he played a lot of sports Pretty much tried to pass myself off As Native American And um, Actually attended um, A school for a brief brief period of time Those four Native Americans Before eventually making it to Carlisle Indian School In Pennsylvania Now this was one of the first schools That was established for this purpose And in about In 1890, they started a football team and their football team was world famous. They would beat all the great teams of the day, which were mostly uh, Ivy League schools, Harvard, Princeton, Brown. They would come and they would just beat the hell out of them. And this is also kind of where this term, that term that we used, gets put onto them by a lot of white newspapers. They were the Carlisle Red Men, but newspapers said that they were the red blank. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, even though they're world famous, it was kind of perverse people watching them because this was after the... Um, wars against Native Americans. So in a lot of these white audiences' minds, they were watching kind of a recap of, uh, or a reenactment, rather, of um, the wars that had happened throughout the 19th century but on the football field. So Carlisle was world famous. They were fantastic. They had Jim Thorpe, who um, there's a it's a good movie for the time, but Jim Thorpe's played by Burt Lancaster, so I'll just leave it at that, um, called Jim Thorpe All-American. He basically started starts at the first NFL and helped start the first NFL because of his popularity in 1920, and he's with Carlisle, and his coach is a guy named Glenn Pop Warner. If you've ever played Pop Warner as a kid, that's where that term comes from. Um, it was from this coach, and so... Pop kind of has this like incredible power in Carlisle and usually to attend Carlisle you needed a proof of being on a reservation Um, but pop if you were a good coach you didn't really need that proof and so Willie slides onto the team plays there for a few years becomes pops assistant and then later on becomes the coach at Washington State Now, during this time, he's fully committed to this Native American identity while he was at the World's Fair. He finds out about this story, this mystery of this guy named James One Star, who was um, half Native American, half white and volunteered for the army. Um, Then gets dishonorably discharged. His regiment actually, um, his company rather, guards Geronimo when he was taken prisoner. And he's dishonorably discharged for drinking and bad behavior and then vanishes, just disappears. So Willie hears this story and kind of creates a whole autobiography for himself. This is where it gets a little confusing because If he's trying to pass himself off as James One Star, it's the dumbest thing ever, because he was born when James One Star was pretty much already in the military or a few years before being in the military. Um, But he creates this autobiography for himself that he helps put in the Literary Digest when he's getting interviewed. Well, he's uh, at Carlisle in 1912, and he pretty much says that his dad, his actual dad, who's named William Wallace Dietz, uh, was on a wagon train when they get attacked by Red Cloud because, you know, he's just dropping names all over the place, and um, his dad gets taken prisoner for a while, falls in love with uh, uh, Red Cloud's daughter, has a kid with the daughter, and then... Goes home, comes back later for his son, who had been on the reservation for five years, and he's that son. But at the same time, he's writing letters to James One Star's sister, whose name's Sally Eagle Horse, and claiming to be... James One Star, her long lost brother. And at the same time, he's uh, has fooled the government because the they started being like, oh, James One Star's still alive. We should figure out more about that. And so they ask him, like, hey, are you a call now? And he answers back. Yes. So he gets put into the enrollment at the Pine Ridge um, Lakota reservation. And since he has his identity, he starts getting annuity checks from the government that he collects in Pullman, Washington in 1916 and 1917. And so he's fully just like committed to this. Um, He um, is dressing up like Native Americans on occasion. He's playing Native Americans in some early movies, some early silent films. Um, And he's presenting himself as the Native American head coach of Washington State football, and he is actually a really great coach. He gets them, to this day, Washington State has only won one Rose Bowl, and it was in 1916, with Willie Dietz as, as their coach. Um, but Seattle newspapers kind of start to figure out that this is a bunch of bullshit, and so they started calling him on it, and calling him on it, and all he really has to say is that, you know, I attended Carlisle Indian School, I mean, I'm on the enrollment in Pine Ridge, you can ask any of these people, I'm legit. But they don't buy it, obviously. And so that leads to him getting uh, charged with trying to get out of the draft as a non-citizen Native American in 1919. Now, at the trial, the FBI brings over... All the witnesses from his hometown who at this point have um, found out what Dietz is doing. And it's a local joke that this kid who they saw run around is trying to pass himself off as Native American. Um, and some of the articles I read, you know, quote, playing Indian had been a thing for a while. You know, the Boy Scouts do it. There was things called Red Man Societies. You know, it goes back to the time of the Tea Party. Uh um, one of the church groups I was in when I was really young, you could earn these things that were kind of like merit badges, but they were arrowheads. And you could get a bronze, a silver, and a gold arrowhead. So this is just something that goes back for forever of if you were asking yourself the question, why would this guy tend to be Native American during this horrible time of Native American discrimination? <laughs> Um that has always kind of been around and especially he came upon this time where it was called the the vanishing Indian myth basically people thought Native Americans were going to go extinct. And so they became this kind of like exotic thing, like, oh, oh, you're Native American. Oh, so interesting. Um, so he kind of capitalizes on that. And like I said, he capitalizes on this uh, feeling by whites that's, oh, an assimilated Native American. Oh, so exotic. And he capitalizes on all those feelings to try to get himself into this position of feeling unique. Uh, even though... At the trial, tons of people show up, tons of people say that he's not Native American. They figure out how he kind of weaseled this way into Carlisle. But it ends in a hung jury because he gets his mom, who he had a weird relationship with, to say that he, in fact, the child she had was stillborn and that her dad had um, had had an affair with a native American woman. And he brought that child and replaced it. And that for a lot of reasons is a bunch of bullshit. Uh, But that, you know, it's the early 1900s. So every single trial you can think of is like a big show. So he eventually has a hung trial. He pleads to a lesser crime and he spends 30 days in jail. He bounces around a whole different spots before arriving at the, um, uh, Washington in the 1930s. Now, this is the story that current owner of the Washington Commanders, who spent so many years saying, there's no way I'm changing the team. There's no way I'm changing the team. Yada, yada, yada. This is the story you'd have you believe. But as I point out, it's all bullshit. And then on top of that, when they interviewed Marshall in 1933 as to why he changed the team, he said, it has nothing to do with Willie Dietz. No, in fact, actually, I just want to change the team's name to avoid confusion with the Boston Braves, the baseball team. So this whole idea of this name having this sacred history, or this story behind it is complete garbage. And let's just talk a little bit about, more about George Preston Marshall, you know. Even at the time, you know, him hiring Willie Dietz, there was a newspaper that was like, oh, he's a racial pioneer for his time. But, you know, let's see how well he honored Native Americans when he was owning the team. So George Preston Marshall was a big into marketing, right? In fact, his wife helped him create one of the first team fight songs for a pro sports. And uh, it eventually becomes the team's a uh, very famous fight song, which is called Hail to the Blank. Um, now, I'm not going to sing this song to you. Uh, it's in the key of uh, Jesus Loves Me. So I'm just going to say it because I'm terrible at singing. I'm not going to put that on record. But here's how it goes. Scalp them, swamp em, We take em, big score. Read them, weep em, Touchdown. We want heap more.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Fight on, fight on, till you have won. Fight on, sons of Washington. Rah, rah, rah. Hail to the blank. Hail victory. Braves on the warpath. Fight for old D.C. Um, that is disturbing. That is super disturbing. Uh, he had a band, which was all white, that would wear Native American headdresses. Uh, there's a picture on uh, 1949, I believe, of him and the coach smoking a peace pipe. Uh, his cheerleaders were all dressed up like Indian squalls. Um, None of this was done out of respect. No. What he did is that he knew he had a marketing idea. Basically, you know, it was still the same idea that Native Americans were going from the vanishing Indian myth of we'll never see these people again to kind of being caricatures. And you see this captured in a lot of films from the 1930s. They were our hostile noble antagonists in our war to civilize the West. And all their iconography was used by guys like Marshall, by, you know, creators of John Wayne movies, etc., to kind of capitalize on what they thought, since Native Americans weren't really around anymore, and since the war for the West was over, as free range. They they could grab the stuff, use it as they wanted as free range. Nobody would get hurt, right? Oh, and I also heard that he would have Dietz and all the players put on war paint before the games. And he would also have them dance around in a Native American dance, which some of his coaches said was the dumbest thing ever because they would get tired and embarrassed before the games. And then let's explore uh, Marshall's other attitudes about race. So... The Washington football team was the very last team to integrate, not just in the NFL, the NFL, the NBA and the MLB. They were the very last team to be all white. And according to Marshall, he said, and then I'm going to be using quotes. So I'm going to be using um, names of the time. So this is just a direct quote from Marshall going, I have nothing against Negroes. I but I want an all white team. (laughs) (laughs) and then a lot of this had to do with his big marketing idea he wanted to be the team of the south like we were joking about in the beginning him being a good old boy he really was Mm. he said he was a son of the south he brought up being all the ideas of the south and you know we're firmly into the lost cause myth of this time this had been like being taught in uh, kindergarten textbooks at this point, that the South was uh, fought for a noble cause and yada, yada, blah, 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 blah. So Marshall wanted to capitalize this. He was the furthest Southern team. Um, His uh, bands, that I said, all white, wearing headdresses, would play Dixie before every game. Uh, He signed one of the first... Contracts with a a TV network just to show his team, and he did it so it was broadcast all over the South. Um, He would also recruit and draft and sign um, players from Southern teams. most specifically, Sammy Baugh, who's called Slingin' Sammy Baugh. And he really was like the first prototypical quarterback. When you think of a quarterback, you think of Sammy Baugh, pretty much. He was the, he was the archetype. From the beginning um and he was from tcu and he was a good old farm boy etc but even then marshall like like to tweak things about him so marshall um told sammy ba to wear a cowboy hat when he landed in washington and ba says i don't have a cowboy hat and so marshall said buy a cowboy hat i'll reimburse you and get some cowboy boots and uh, Baugh had never worn cowboy boots and hated them because they pinched his feet. Um, but the the role stuck. People thought of slinging Sammy Baugh as this, you know, the southern cowboy. And he was even in a few western serials in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. All this just to market his team as the team of the South. Uh, he would invite southern colleges up um, and they would play during his halftime shows. Um, and also... He was kind of trying to capture D.C.'s southern population, which was had a lot of white mindedness uh, at the time. Um, And then as civil rights progressed, like in the 1950s, he just became more intracted. He just became more hardcore. In fact, that fight song uh, we were talking about in 1959. So during the heart of the civil rights movement, he changed the fight for old D.C. to fight for old Dixie. Mm. now even then this was kind of in my opinion i think a marketing scheme because in 1960 the nfl wanted to expand into his southern market right uh, particularly with the dallas cowboys Mm. um and so he the way they convinced him to vote for expansion was that they threatened to buy the copyright they actually did buy the copyright for um hail to the Blank. So I think this was kind of a little ploy by him to get around the copyrights, but also, you know, why miss an opportunity to appeal to your southern audience? So eventually they do expand. And this is where we were talking about the other day where the Cowboys come across a little bit as the heroes in this because the Cowboys from their start were an integrated team. They had black players from the first game they played. So a lot of D.C. fans and a lot of Southern um, uh, black football fans rather than cheer for the Washington who was run by a racist owner had an all white team would choose another Southern team the Cowboys. So if you are ever wondering why the Cowboys fan base kind of has this across-the-board appeal outside of Texas. It's because a lot of people in the South during civil rights who were black had a choice between Dallas or Washington. They chose Dallas, and they told their kids to choose Dallas, and they told their kids about what a horrible person Preston Marshall was and how that was the team of Dixie. That was the team of segregation. If we were... You know, if you were going in to a place in the South where a bunch of good old boys are sitting around, they'd be talking about and cheering for Washington. Now, the uh, NFL uh, had been integrated before. Uh, it had been integrated Back when it first started. In fact, there was a few players, uh, and I had their names written down because I think these guys need to be talked about. Uh, Paul Robertson, uh, the guy I want to talk about is Frederick Douglass Fitz Pollard, Duke Slater, J. Mayo Williams, and then the last two guys were Joe Lillard and Ray Kemp. And they played in uh, about 1933, and then for 13 years, there were no black players in the NFL. Mm -hmm. And some people say that it was Marshall that kind of influenced guys like uh, Joe Hallis or no, not Joe House, uh George Hallis, the guy for the bears and um, the owner of the Steelers and a lot of these old timey guys to integrate. But what was probably going on is that it was the middle of the depression. And so if you gave a job to a black man, People would get pissed off because there were white people that needed that job, et oh cetera, God. et cetera. So they kind of agreed to have what baseball called the gentleman's agreement. They pretty much agreed to copy that. There wasn't an official rule that black people couldn't play, but they all understood what was going on. Every
0: time you say gentlemen's agreement, I just think about like a Colonel Sanders looking motherfucker. Exactly. Like,
1: oh. Oh, excuse me. Oh, oh, oh. a gentleman. I'm looking for a gentleman's agreement, if you know what I'm I'm saying. I'm looking for a gentleman's agreement. (laughs) He's, like, twisting his evil-looking mustache between his fingers. (laughs) Yeah, he just got it all curled up (laughs) while he has somebody tied to a railroad track. (laughs) And then he has, like, some
0: random cough, and so he pulls out his little white handkerchief. Oh, God,
1: yeah. I got a touch touch of the consumption. Yum, 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 yum.
0: (laughs) From all my right
1: Excuse me if I cough a little racism on you. (coughs) (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I just wanted to—I just think it's important to talk about these guys, not just list them off his name. But the one I want to talk about is Frederick Douglass Fitzpollard. I'm just going to be real quick. Uh, he was an All-American from Brown University. Uh, he served in World War One and then went on to join the pro team, the Akron Pros, who won the first NFL championship in 1920. Uh, then they made him the coach, the co-coach and player in 1921. He was with a lot of different teams throughout the 20s, and then 1928 he organized the Chicago. Blackhawks, which was an all-black pro team that would play against white teams all through the Midwest, and then in the winter they would go up and down the West Coast to play, and then this is a very big influence that you'll see later on, because a lot of people love this team that are on the West Coast particularly black Americans living on the West Coast Now, uh, let's keep going. Now, this the gentleman's agreement lasts until World War Two. After World War Two, a lot of attitudes about race change. Uh, You know, people didn't think that after fighting a war against tyranny and oppression, that it was a good idea to just, you know, keep being the same racist pieces of shits back home. So Truman integrates the military in 1947 You have Jackie Robinson in 1947. But in 1946, the NFL actually gets integrated. One team gets integrated, the Los Angeles Rams. And the only reason they integrate, they had moved from Cleveland to L.A., Uh, the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. Um, organization, the L.A. Tribune and a lot of black citizens in L.A. pushed them to integrate if they were going to be in there. And they uh, drafted a UCLA running back named Kenny Williams. And then the Cleveland Browns of the All-American Football Conference, which started in 1946, um, began with two black players, uh, Bill Willis and then Marion Motley. Marion Motley, I think, is a Hall of Famer. And then once that happens, Teams that integrate start kicking the shit out of teams that didn't integrate. The Browns go to multiple championships. The Rams go to multiple championships. The Detroit Lions go to multiple championships. They have a famous player uh, named Night Train Lane who actually started the clothesline. The clothesline tackle was his signature move. And then later the Baltimore Colts who had Lenny Moore. So all these teams start winning. And meanwhile, Washington sucks. Pretty much semi-ball gets old, they don't integrate their team, and they just become a complete laughing stock. They're a fucking joke. And Marshall, no matter what, still refuses to integrate the team. Now In the 50s, uh, his former announcer and a stockholder named um, Harry and Wiseman sues Marshall because he claims that he was using a lot of the funds that were supposed to go to the team for his own personal services, Mm. dinners, drivers, all that bullshit. And he decides to have his revenge on Marshall by speaking to the Capitol Press Club. Now, the Capitol Press Club is um, what basically becomes the all-black version of the National Press Club because the National Press Club that worked in Washington wouldn't allow black members. So they formed the Capitol Press Club and he meets with them and he pretty much just has a Q&A session where he talks all about Marshall and his racist bullshit. And um, the press starts hounding him. Mm. Um, everybody from the Washington Post, from a bunch of uh, black newspapers, all black run newspapers all start going after Marshall hard, But he, he couldn't care less. And NFL owners and Commissioner Burt Bell, even though their teams had integrated by this point, they didn't say anything publicly against Marshall. They didn't want to say anything, including Wellington Mara, who was the son of the then Giants owner who would become the Giants owner later in life, says... Uh, we can't tell Marshall how to run his team just like he oh, he can't tell us to run our team. Uh, eventually I think it was 1959 there was a 1959-1957 there was a league meeting that gets protested By some members of these uh, black run newspapers. So there's pickets outside saying Marshall's a fucking racist to integrate the Washington football team. Um, But Commissioner Bell at the end of that meeting said Marshall was the greatest asset sports had ever known. Oh, it's 1956, 1956 league meeting that was protested by picketers. Commissioner Bell says he was the greatest asset he had ever known. And this and he was an a-hole, hmm. even to the owners. He was loud and boisterous. And sometimes he would show up to meetings in his pajamas just showing disregard for everybody else. Hmm. And they all knew he was an asshole, but they didn't want to say anything about it because, if hey, if, if we turn against one of us, then they're going to turn against all of us. Hmm. And this is a pattern that's going to come up. Where the commissioner and other owners know that this person is a complete piece of shit, but they're not going to do anything. It still happens today where this commissioner knows what's right, knows what's wrong, will go with what's convenient every, every time. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so what eventually gets, the? eventually he doesn't like have a change of heart or anything like that. What happens is, is that Kennedy administration takes over and Kennedy had run on kind of a more progressive racial integration platform Mm -hmm. and, uh, Washington needed a new stadium. So, um, his secretary of interior, Udall, figures out that the, um, Spot where they want to build on is part of the Department of Interior slash park department's land. It's, it's kind of weird because D.C. wasn't like a city kind of like it is now, which is home run. A lot of this stuff was federally owned. So um, he tells Marshall, hey, you have to have a um, integrated team if you want to use this land. And Marshall had signed a deal in 1959 where he had agreed to have a... Um, Uh, black people working in the stadium, but he had forced them to take out the amendment that said he had to have black players. And he's like, hey, I signed an agreement, but the agreement says that Marshall had to uh, comply with everything the um, Department of Interior said. Mm -hmm. So he's in a bind. He needs to integrate by the start of this year, or he's not going to be allowed to use the stadium. And this is all in the backdrop of the Freedom Riders. This is in the backdrop of um, Kennedy starting to kind of push his civil rights uh, act through. And Marshall, uh, you know, eventually says he'll comply, but he's just dragging his feet the entire time. And I have a lovely quote by him. He said to the press that he would comply, even if it meant signing an Eskimo, a Chinese, or a Mongolian. Oh, my God. So eventually um, this drags on and drags on and drags on. Until it's right before the 1961 season when Marshall agrees that he would draft a player in that December's draft. And Washington is terrible. They go 1-12-1 in 1961. And they get the first overall black um, draft pick, rather. And they're going to draft Ernie Davis, who was the first black Heisman Trophy winner out of Syracuse. Um. Uh, but Davis says, he, OK, so I couldn't find this backed up, but the legend goes that Davis says, I don't want to play for that son of a bitch. And they kind of understand that they're going to have to trade the pick. So they trade Davis to Syracuse, who, sadly enough, never plays a game in the pros. Mm. He gets leukemia and dies the next year. Oh, uh, they, yeah. They made a movie about him called The Express. Uh, looking it up, it doesn't look like it was like it had accurate parts, but it is. A, it's a movie, so what are you gonna expect? Um, and they trade for um, the Cleveland Browns running back named Bobby Mitchell. So Bobby Mitchell was the, the secondary running back to All Worlds running back Jim Brown. Um, he's out of University of Illinois, and he has a Hall of Fame career with uh, Washington. Um, but even after you know, Marshall has integrated the team. He's still the same asshole. So like a story from that I heard from Bobby Mitchell in an interview was that before every year they would have a welcome back luncheon, right? And at the end of the luncheon, they would play Dixie. Then so they would play that song. And, um, Bobby Mitchell was sitting there and George Marshall was behind them and Bobby Mitchell's not singing. And so George Marshall goes, God, Damn it, Bobby Mitchell sang! And Mitchell didn't know the words, so he just starts moving his mouth. And he's like, I didn't know the song. Yeah, I'd heard it, but I'm not going to sing it. Um, And so uh, he's still the same fucking guy. And Mitchell faced horrible discrimination in D.C. He said he got spat on in restaurants. He said that he had his shoes spat on. He wouldn't get let let into restaurants. And when he did, people would spit on him. He had a great year and people were still a dick to them. It, It took him years and years to finally. He said that he learned to adapt, which to me means he learned to avoid the fucking race. People in Washington D.C., and he ends up staying with Washington um, for decades afterwards. In the either as a player or in the front office. Now, finally, uh, Marshall gets really old. The day-to-day operations of the team get taken away from him, and in 1969, he dies and gets. Taken back to West Virginia, where he gets buried in a place called Indian Mounds Cemetery. And that is the end of George Preston Marshall's run with Washington.
0: George Preston Marshall.
1: George Preston Marshall. There's a ton of other stories. Like, I feel like I've just scratched the surface. You could dig up a million horrible racist quotes by this guy. You could dig up all the, you know, um, awful photos that he took and all the Native American iconography that he stole, all for the purpose of making himself... Uh, rich. And also, I didn't even talk about what a cheap bastard he is. Uh, There's one story I'm going to leave you on. So one of his players gets horribly injured in a car accident and becomes partially paralyzed when they're on a West Coast training trip. Marshall says, not my problem. I'm not paying for this guy. He wasn't playing for the team. He was just driving around in the offseason training. So he refuses to pay to help this guy who's now paralyzed and can't play for his team anymore. So one of his fellow players has to start a fund to pretty much pay for this guy's medical bills. He's just an awful, awful, awful person. Cheap, racist bastard. Um, So now we're going to talk about... The next guy was a guy named Edward Bennett Williams, and he didn't have that remarkable of a career with uh, Washington. He has an amazing legal career. He was pretty much like the first, I don't know about the first, but one of the most popular celebrity lawyers that's of the latter half of the 20th century, let's say. So he... Um, uh, representing people who were in the McCarthy trials, you know, like, you know, the anti communists the mm-hmm. yeah. House of Un-American Activities Committee. And then later, when McCarthy gets put on trial, he defends McCarthy. He defended Jimmy Hoffa. He defended Mobster, Frank Costello, defended Frank Sinatra, Sugar Ray Robinson, a ton of celebrities. He has this remarkable legal career. And he's like one of the most highly esteemed lawyers of his time. And... He was George Preston Marshall's lawyer, and then you know Marshall starts getting old. He starts letting people invest in the team, and Marshall – or pardon me, Edward Bennett Williams buys about 5%. Then in 1965, he becomes team president, and what he starts doing is starting to get rid of Marshall's cheapness. So Marshall's team was – for years, the least paid team in all of football. And so he changes that and starts actually paying people what they're worth, and he also starts paying for these really high-profile coaches. The uh, first one he pays is uh, Otto Graham, who was the quarterback for that Cleveland Browns team I was talking about. That was one of the first integrated teams that had had a bunch of success in the 50s. He pays him like $60,000, which is huge at the time. But Graham's not a better player than he was a coach. So in 1969, he hires Vince Lombardi. And uh, people don't really know Vince Lombardi was actually a coach for Washington for one year. Um, He steps down from Green Bay... And he's the guy, you know, the trophy is named after. Vince Lombardi trophy. He's the guy for football. Uh, but he coaches Washington from one year, really changes their culture from a kind of gaggle of losers to them having a winning season. And he has a huge impact on the team in that just that one year. But then he gets sick and dies of colon cancer the next year. Mm. So, um, the... Uh, Edward Bennett Williams hires pretty much the bane of his existence, a guy named George Allen, who I swear to God, we could do a whole episode just on him. So all these guys, Lombardi, Edward Bennett Williams, George Allen, they all kind of have the same thing in common. It's called contest living. So basically everything in life is a winner or loser perspective. And that gets them pretty much hyped for everything in their life. Uh, Now, Ever Bennett Williams did this with serious stuff. Politics, the law, you know, he had that kind of lawyer, winner, loser mentality. Lombardi pretty much did it just for football. Like everything, every play was a win or loss. He would actually have this grading system for players where they would get a plus one, a plus two, a minus two, based on how well they did their assignment. Uh, George Allen did that for literally everything. There was a time when he was uh, sitting next to one of his coaches when they were eating uh, lunch or dinner. And the guy's having a steak. And George Allen goes over to him and he goes, you know, that cow's a loser. If he was a winner, he'd still be out there grazing in the field. So he was just a screwy, screwy guy. Um, But Edward Bennett Williams gives him everything he wants. He gets him a brand new practice facility. Um, He pretty much pays whatever um, George Allen asked for. Uh, He makes a joke at a luncheon that um, he, he told Allen that he had to win at all costs and he would give him whatever he wanted. And he said, I gave him an unlimited budget and he's been here three weeks and he's exceeded it. Uh, And Alan takes that to a fence. And after Williams says that, and everybody laughs, yeah, uh, (laughs) Alan goes up and goes, What'd you hire me for? I thought you wanted a winner. And uh, everyone was kind of looking around like, What the hell's going on with this guy? Uh, And Alan uh, gets Washington to their first Super Bowl. He hates rookies, he gets rid of all their draft picks and hires a bunch of old guys. And they nicknamed the team the Over the Hill Gang. And Allen is just in, like, just among the most stubborn SOBs anybody's ever met. He only wants to win his way. Uh, the Washington's best quarterback, besides probably Sammy Baugh, is a guy named Sonny Jurgensen, who we could also do another episode on because he was a great quarterback, but he also loved to party. He had a little beer gut that he would always come to. to um, practice with, but he was one of the most accurate quarterbacks, not just for the '60s, probably in NFL history. And since he wouldn't do everything Allen said, Allen um, uh, wouldn't put him in. Even after um, uh, Sonny Jergensen gets hurt, he puts in Billy Kilmer. Kilmer gets him to the Super Bowl. Uh, Jer- Jergensen isn't invited to sit on the sidelines during the Super Bowl. He has to get a ticket. And sit in the Coliseum Stadium. And then afterwards, they take the team photo. And Allen has them take two photos. One of with Jergensen and one without Jergensen. And prints the one without Jergensen. So you can tell Edward Billing, Edward Bennett Williams had his hands full with this guy. And Washington eventually fizzles out. He does draft a lot of the players that so would make them great in the 80s. And signs um, a lot of great players as well. He, he signs, or rather he drafts Joe Theismann. He signs... Um, their great kicker named... Oh, what was that guy's name? Anyway, he signs this great kicker, uh, the only guy who's a kicker to win MVP of the league, and then he signs John Riggins, who's the we could also do a episode on because this guy was wild. He used to have a big mohawk, and he put his helmet down. Um, he didn't play for a whole year just because he didn't want to. He lived up in the woods and pretty much lived off the land. He was a wild, wild guy. So all these cast of characters kind of take their toll on Edward Bennett Williams. Uh, th- he's only ever the partial owner, the full owner, the guy we're going to talk about next, um, relieves him of his duties in 1979 and finally buys him out in 1985. And Edward, when Edward Bennett Williams, hard name to say, uh, dies in 1988. So now our next owner is Jack Kent cook. And this guy doesn't have a huge impact on the team per se, uh, but he has an insane personal life. So he was born in Hamilton, Ontario, uh, in Canada, uh, mm. October twelfth, nineteen twelve. He dropped out of high school to try to make money for his family during the Depression. He started selling encyclopedias door to door. Forgot that was a thing. Yeah, he would have encyclopedias. Or would you like to buy an encyclopedia? Like to ball
0: an encyclopedia.
1: Uh, so he does that. Sells a few other things. Kind of has some odd jobs, and then gets a managing job at CJCS radio station in uh, Stratford, Stratford, Ontario. jeez these places. Being twenty-five bucks a week. Oh my God. <laughs> In uh, early 1940s, uh, he invests in the radio station and along with the guy who hired him, he spruces up a lot of these stations, turning them around and starts having a career in uh, broadcasting. And by the time he was 31, he was already a millionaire. Uh, His first sports team was the Toronto Maple Leafs minor league team. Uh, which was a AAA international team. He had a pretty interesting history with them. He uh, would push for a Canadian team, which eventually became the Toronto Blue Jays in the 70s, I believe. Uh, He had Sparky Anderson as one of his managers. He would become a great manager for the Cincinnati Reds in the 1970s. And let's have a little bit more about... Jack can't cook. Uh, he definitely had a uh, love of the finer things. You know, nice dinners. Uh, he was well-dressed all the time. He dressed really... Um, uh, what's, uh, he'd, what's that called? Hmm. He dressed... Ex- not extravagantly, but... Uh, he was an eccentric. He was an eccentric guy. He would dress in like plaid jackets. He'd have his little like plaid hats. Um, he'd... Like I said, nice cars, invested in a whole bunch of different things, is the owner of the Chrysler building for a little bit in New York. Um, now, eventually, his broadcasting in Canada isn't getting enough money, so he decides to move to America. But at the time, you couldn't be a foreign citizen and own a broadcasting company. Mm hmm. Um,. So he decides to become a U.S. citizen and he just writes Congress and writes the presidents and they waive the five year waiting period pretty much because he's rich and he gets to be a U.S. citizen almost right away. And then he moves out to the West Coast, uh, buys some American broadcasting companies, buys one in Washington, uh, and he's another opponent of contest living. So pretty much everything he did was in competition with himself and everybody else. Uh, he buys the Lakers in mm. 1965, and he is the reason why they have purple and gold uniforms. Mm. So it used to be they were white and blue, trying, trying to match the Dodgers. The Lakers was written in script, just like how the Dodgers was written in scripts on their jerseys. But he changes them to Purple and Gold, which to me is one of the greatest decisions a sports owner has ever made. Yeah, that's pretty iconic. It's iconic now. And mm-hmm. if you think of the Lakers, you think of Purple and Gold. Yeah. He also um, bought, built some, a new uh, arena called the uh, Forum, which he called the Fabulous Forum. And it would have these beautiful chandeliers and, you know, he was the guy who promoted uh, celebrities being on the court. So mm-hmm. it used to be the press was on the court. He moved them back and put celebrities on the court. Mm. So the reason why you can get courtside seats pretty much just because of him. Um, And the forum was actually called Kent's Boondoggle, or Cook's Boondoggle at the uh, start, but it eventually becomes one of the most iconic stadiums in the world. Uh, But it wasn't all great. Like The Lakers lost a lot of finals because of him. Uh, The most uh tragic one it was in 1969. They had home court advantage in Game 7. And uh, Jack Kent Cooke puts all these purple and gold balloons all up in the rafters. He has the USC bands waiting to say, Happy Days are here again, which is kind of like uh, had become a California anthem at that time. And the Celtics, the Lakers' our rival, the team that had beaten them a bunch of times, gets to the stadium early and sees the balloons. And Bill Russell uh, looks to his team and says, "How hilarious would it be for them to for us to stay and watch them take all those balloons down one at a time?" And so, of course, the Lakers lose that finals, and they have to take all the balloons down one at a time. <clears throat> no, he does eventually win a championship, nineteen seventy-two. One of the best teams ever. He's a good owner in general. Mm-hmm. Um, now. He had been married to his wife at this point for about almost 40 years. Wow. Um, But he was just a crazy man. He was running all over. Like I said, he owned businesses all over. He owned the Chrysler building. He owned the Lakers. And so he was just wild living all over. And she could not keep up. So she tries to divorce him multiple times. And he keeps saying, no, 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 no. Um, and so she had tried to kill herself a few times. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, just to get away from him. And then finally, uh, he relents in 1979. And the, she's awarded a, at that time, record $41 million in the divorce. Wow. And the judge who, um, this is just a fun side story, the judge who rewarded her that was Judge Wapner. And that was from the People's Court. So if you ever see Rain Man where he goes, Wapner, four o'clock, Wapner, Wapner, same guy. Mm. So he had a very, like, crazy celebrity lifestyle. Um, He has to sell the Lakers then. Um, uh, Pete Rozelle, who was the commissioner, uh, didn't want people owning... Uh, teams in two leagues so like an example is like this is eventually changed but like the owner of the Avs also owns the Rams and he didn't want that because he didn't want uh, him the Avs competing in the same market with another NFL owner because he thought that you know that wouldn't Be good consolidation for the league, pretty Mm -hmm. much. That if you guys, these guys are competing on multiple markets, so he has to sell the Lakers, and you know, he also has to pay for this $41 million divorce. Um, and he sells it to Jerry Buss, which, besides the purple and golds, is the greatest decision ever. Because I will argue to this day that Jerry Buss is the greatest owner in professional sports ever. Um, so he moves out to Vegas for a while. He kind of doesn't know what to do with himself. Uh, this is just a year after he gets divorced. He marries a, a Las Vegas socialite and sculptor. Uh, they get divorced, I think, with like in a month or so. Mm-hmm. And so later on, he meets a woman named Susan Martin at a pool. Uh, I think over in up in New York. Uh, he's seventy four at the time, and she's thirty one. Gross. Uh, Gross. <laughs> Oh, it's going to get a lot grosser, baby. Trust me. So they start a relationship or whatever. And uh, from what the story is, is that she has two abortions that he pushed her into. He didn't want another kid. His kids were fully grown at the time. Yeah,
0: he's fucking 70, man.
1: He actually had a grandkid at the time. And the grandkid has a whole another story. Basically, he also owns the Kings at the time. And he promises the grandson that, you know, oh, you're going to be uh, the owner of the Kings one day. All this will be yours. So he slacks off in school. And eventually that doesn't happen because when they get divorced, his dad goes with his mom instead of Jack can't cook and so he gets cut out of the family essentially. So he has a horrible life, becomes an alcoholic and dies super young. And he doesn't talk to his son for years and years and years. So while that's all happening, he's shacking up with this 31 year old who he forces to get two abortions and then he wants to, um, um, he breaks up with her and she tries to commit suicide. and then oh my he- God, and then he invites her, he takes her back, but he's like, you have to be pretty much my like lady servant. You have to have my wine ready for me, my slippers, Ew. dinner, all this stuff. And then she gets pregnant again, and so he's like, you, you want to get married? You're going to need another abortion, and you need to sign this prenup. So she signs the prenup, agrees for the abortion, they get married, and then she's like, no, I've changed my mind, I can't do this anymore, because it's had a horrible effect on her mental health, Wait, obviously. So-
0: how long were they married before she changed her mind? Uh, like,
1: like, oh, <laughs> I'm so glad you asked that. He was. So, so what happens is they get married. Mm-hmm. The next day he drives her to the hospital and she's like, no, I changed my mind. They ended up only being married for a total of 87 days. Wow. And so she, um, you know, tries to sue him to get out of the prenup and sh- she fails. Mm. Um and never sees the kid. Well, no, I take that back. Sees the kid once. Wait, so she ends up having the kid. Ends up having the kid. Okay. He sees the kid once. The story is, when he sees her, and apparently she's the spitting image of him. So when he sees her, he runs over, picks her up and goes, no question whose baby that is, and then gives her back, never sees her again. He wants nothing to do with her. He didn't send her a card. And apparently he would give these, like, silver-plated coffee mugs whenever his employees would have um, babies. Never gave anything. 73 days. That's how long they were married for. Wow. Uh, He was also a nutcase to work with. Um, uh, The um, King's longtime announcer, who, uh, if you ever watch uh, Mighty Ducks 2, he's the announcer in that. Uh, He said that there was a joke that if your phone at your desk rang three times and you didn't answer it and it was Jack Kent Cook, just pack your things, you're fired. And sometimes he would do that just to test people. And then when they did answer he would just quiz them about, like, you know, times the forum was opening. Forum employees, like, had a lookout for him. Like, he was just such a nutcase. Um, Sorry for using the, the terms like nutcase and stuff like that, but like, he just, I can't think of a better word for him. He just was a crazy rich old man and it didn't seem like he was always like this he seemed like a pretty normal guy but he just seems like somebody who got old and had too much money they didn't know what to do with mm-hmm. and so he just used it to ruin other people's lives uh, he would give these silver plated coffee warmers to his employees engraved with his name uh, he says that's wrong but it's, it's definitely in keeping for him so I, I believe that story uh, no the relationship he had with the commissioner uh, was kind of interesting. So, like I said, he respected Roselle. Roselle made him sell the team in 1979, sell the Lakers. Uh, everybody pretty much had respect for Roselle because mm-hmm. Roselle was just this super powerful commissioner. But he had a really weird relationship for him. Because remember that son that I mm-hmm. told you about that he didn't talk to? Yeah. His name was Ralph. Ralph Kent. Or Ralph Cook. Uh, now, Ralph Cook gets a divorce as well. And his wife, Carrie, uh, after the divorce, ends up marrying Roselle. So his ex-daughter-in-law is now married to not his boss because the commissioner is technically the owner's employee. Hmm. So his employee now is married to his ex-daughter-in-law. So while all this crazy... um, Uh, off-the-field stuff is happening. Oh, by the way, after he divorces Susan, he marries this um, woman from Columbia who had just served time in prison for selling cocaine. Okay. And she was also, she was in her 40s when he was approaching his 80s. Oh, my goodness. And uh, he actually marries her twice. So he marries her. She has a whole bunch of other crazy stuff. Like, she has a hit-and-run with a guy, and she's seen, I think, driving down the streets of Washington with a guy holding on to her car, being like, stop, lady, stop. Stop! So this is just all nuts. This is just all craziness. But the thing is, is that, um, uh, Roselle can't really do anything about it. Now, keep in mind, any player has any kind of personal misconduct thing. He's on a train out. You know, he Roselle is a pretty like tough commissioner, um, for the most part, I'd say, uh, but he can't do anything with Jack and Cook. It would just look petty. So he's doing all this wild and crazy stuff uh, <laughs> while um, the commissioner is has his hands tied because they have a loving relationship. It's not like he's just like he married her for spite or anything like that. They end up staying married, I think, until Roselle dies. Mm-hmm. Um, Um, But, yeah, anytime she's at league meetings, owners' meetings, anything like that, it's just super awkward because this crazy, extravagant old man is right there. Uh, Now, in terms of, like, uh, how... um, Uh, Jack King Cook's like record on things like Prejudice Uh, he was one of the owners that tried to convince Marshall to integrate in the 1960s when he was on the board of trustees for Washington Mm -hmm. but when it was his time to make a real impact remember Bobby Mitchell from before, mm-hmm. so Bobby Mitchell uh, started in the front office in 1969 when he retired from football. Uh, that was at the urging of Vince Lombardi. So Vince Lombardi said, "You have a future in this. You should be in the front office." And at first, he has a real impact on players and uh, front office decisions and stuff like that. But you know. George Allen comes busting in, and there's just not enough room in the world for George Allen. So eventually Bobby Mitchell gets pushed out and has kind of just an honorary position. But in 1988, the Washington football team needs a new general manager. And so people were like, you should hire Bobby Mitchell as the first black general manager. And not only did he not hire him, he didn't even call him. He didn't even, like, call him much less interview him. He gave him zero respect on that. And then, like, he's had to stay around in his front office position after being horribly embarrassed by that. And he hires some uh, some random white guy with no connection to the team. Wow. So... Kent Cook. I mean, you could say he had all this crazy stuff going around, but he had his opportunity to make an impact and he failed. Uh So let's call it what it is. Like, I, I don't know if you don't say, you know, maybe Kent Cook's not a raging racist like Marshall was, but he still falls into this trap that so many NFL owners do. Like, I'm going to hire the guy that my friends say is the guy I should hire. All my friends happen to be white. I don't see why that has an issue to do with anything. Right. So he hires this guy named Charlie Cassidy instead of Bobby Mitchell, the guy who had been with the team for decades at that point. And you know, who knows how like good or bad Bobby Mitchell would have been, but at least he would have been hired. At least he would have had a chance. We're never going to know how good or bad he would have been now. Um, this is an issue that pervades to today, uh, the problem with uh, front office people being hired in the NFL. Now, as I'm talking, the... There are seven current black GMs in the NFL, which is the highest it's ever been. I was going to
0: ask about that. Yeah,
1: there are yeah. currently seven. Okay. Um, uh, which is the highest that it's ever been. Um, and there are 32 teams. So that's the highest that it's ever huh. been. And it's still seven out of 32. So it's still a long and, way to and go. And keep in mind, 80% of the players who play are black. Mm-hmm. So there's still a long, long, long way to go in that regard. Uh, Jack Kent Cook did some good things for Washington They were amazing in the 80s. They were one of the best-run teams by far. Uh, But that had nothing to do with him, I would argue. That was him hiring a guy like Joe Gibbs, who turns out to be one of the best coaches in NFL history. And Joe Gibbs worked himself to the bone. Joe Gibbs uh, would have team meetings, and they would um, uh, be up all night until the street sweepers came at, like, 3 o'clock in the morning, and that was their cue to close it up. Mm -hmm. Like... Like uh, Gibbs burned himself out working to the point where he had to quit in 1992 because he just wasn't spending enough time with his family In his Hall of Fame address. He pretty much cries and apologizes for how much time he took away from his family wow. like this guy gave his all that's the reason why Washington was good that's the reason why a lot of Washington fans remember the 80s so fondly it was because of Joe Gibbs and also I can't remember the GM that he worked with before but they had a very rough relationship but they were able to make it work Jack Cooke was off busy being a rich guy he um, ran Washington from afar Maybe he signed off on all these decisions, but these decisions were made by the people on the ground and the players playing the game. Him being probably their best owner was him doing the absolute least. Mm-hmm. And that's why he was successful, because he didn't meddle, because he didn't put his hands in everything. and But he was the one who reaped the benefits. Now, there's a good end of this story with Cook. So Cook dies in 97, and he, he leaves... He doesn't leave the team to his children. So there his two kids. One of his sons dies. Um, and he... Um... Uh, builds a new stadium on this uh, plot of land that he names after his two sons, and when he dies, he actually starts something called the Jack Kent Cooke Foundation, which if you Google Jack Kent Cooke, is all that comes up. There's rows and rows and rows of the Jack Kent Cooke Foundation, which was a scholarship foundation that donates hundreds of millions of dollars, and apparently does a really, really great job. Now, he leaves the team to the foundation, and uh, says that the team needs to be sold to the highest bidder. And this is in 97, after he dies. Oh, uh, he <laughs> leaves the daughter he never met, like $5 million. Yeah, he leaves the daughter that he never met, like $5 million. Cuts his wife out of the deal, the one who ends up being the cocaine dealer, uh-huh. out of the deal. Out of the deal completely, uh cuts his ex-wife out of the deal, cuts pretty much everybody out of his will, uh-huh. but he leaves a team to this really great charitable foundation, and they are sold for eight hundred million dollars. Wow! Yeah, in uh, nineteen ninety-seven, and the new stadium is named after uh, Jack King Cook. It's called Jack King Cook Stadium, and it's. In Virginia, not D.C., but, you know, you had to go where the land was. It was built on an old farm, pretty much, where he buys the land, builds a new stadium. Which kind of has its own problems of of its own. Uh, We see this with the Atlanta Braves now. Uh, A lot of these teams move their stadiums out to the suburbs where, you know, they're more affluent, white fan base can actually (laughs) access them and white white people uh, can actually access them and not you know the fans from the city who would actually prosper from having this stadium there and so you see that a lot with baseball and football basketball since it's an arena can kind of afford to be downtown it kind of makes more sense to have it downtown but a lot of stadiums are built out in the suburbs where the people that can access them are the people that can spend money and so this stadium gets built on Virginia. The team gets sold for $800 million to a 35-year-old guy who made his money in telemarketing in the 80s named Daniel Schneider. And that's the next owner we're going to talk about. He's the current owner of Washington. So Daniel Schneider was born in Silver Springs, Maryland in 1964. And Snyder grew up a fan of the team. He and his dad would go and watch the team, cheer for the team. They had a real connection, like, with this team. And like I said, Snyder got his start. Well, first he got to start making some money, making... Millions. I think he was a millionaire by 32. Wow. Um, no, no, no. I would hate that back. He was a millionaire by 21. Oh, my God. And that was from selling tickets to sporting events. Hmm. So basically, he would book tickets to sporting events for, you know, people who wanted to go. And then he made a lot of money. Then he lost a lot of his money. And then he made his money back starting Snyder Communications, which was a, it was a telemarketing thing. He made a ton of money doing that. And... Then he gets a group of investors once he hears that uh, Jack Ken Cook has died and he uh, um, bids for them in a silent auction. So they didn't want to be influenced. They just wanted it to go to the highest bidder. They didn't want any other influence. The idea was to start this you know, scholarship foundation. So Cook just says, you know, silent auction, highest bidder. And Schneider gets an investment team together and they buy it for eight hundred million dollars. So, um, one of the first things Snyder does. So, we got Jack Kent Cooke Stadium, right? Years of success. He wins three Super Bowls, goes to four under his reign. They're considered one of the best teams in the NFL. Um, And they named the stadium after this owner who had presided over this reign of excellence. First thing Snyder does, changes the name. No longer Jack Kent Cooke Stadium. FedEx. Stadium, or rather FedEx fields. And this is another thing that happens where stadium naming rights become absolutely huge. Like, this is just gigantic money. So you don't get any soldier fields. Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum is one of the last ones to have naming rights, but it's a whole organization, mm. Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. Um, so, you know, you get things like... You know, FedEx Fields. Um, uh, what is
0: the new one in Denver?
1: It's like. Oh, what is that new one in Denver? It's not in Invesco?
0: No, it's the, not in Vesco
1: anymore. Yeah, see? It's not in Vesco. It's but not no, in no, Power. No, the thing it is, is it, it was Mile High, then it was in Vesco, but people still call it Mile High. Right. So some names stay. Um, but the naming rights is just absolutely huge money. Like the Raiders one is Allegiant Stadium, SoFi Stadium. AT&T Stadium, uh, the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, all these places, huge, huge, huge money. So Sorry, it's called Empower Field Emp- at Mile High. Empower Field at Mile High. Because, you know, they also try to capitalize the nostalgia of the people who actually mm-hmm. care about this team. But, you know, big time naming rights. So Snyder, from a football perspective, we'll just get this out of the way, is probably the biggest idiot in NFL. He makes... Countless mistakes. His first year there, I I it's tough for me to believe that this guy was a football fan, because first year there he hires or signs rather two over-the-hill guys, Deion Sanders and Bruce Smith, who were like the two best players on defense from the eighties. But we're Definitely pass their prime. Bruce Smith was just around so he could get the sack record, which mm-hmm. he does with Washington and then retires. But he pays him an insane amount of money, like way, 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 way too much money. His most famous boondoggle is a guy with Albert Hainsworth, who he a $100 million to. Albert Hainsworth, before he was with Washington, was with Tennessee, and he was most famous for kicking a guy on the ground. Not a good guy. He was a bad, bad, bad player. And he pretty much robs Washington. He gives zero effort. Um, He argues with this coach all the time. And kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back is that um, he gets caught. They're on Monday night, and they're getting destroyed by Washington, or by not by Washington. Washington is getting destroyed by Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and Albert Haynesworth is on the ground. And instead of getting back up, he just kind of lays on the ground. Pay this guy a hundred million dollars, and he just kind of oh. lays on the ground and just uh, slowly gets back up. Well, the Eagles score a touchdown, and people lose their minds. Uh, he also. Like, keep in mind, Washington had Joe Gibbs for about 12 years. And I can't even tell you how many coaches Washington has been through. It's probably close to 10. Now, one of their best coaches was a guy named Marty Schottenheimer. But Schottenheimer pretty much wants to try to run the team his own way and not have Snyder's meddling. So he's there for one year and then gets fired. Uh, He brings in a whole bunch of different other guys. He kind of surrounds himself with his best friends which is common but very very noticeable for him and he just has this terrible terrible record on the field of always making the wrong decision always making the biggest mistake never putting a, field, a team on the field that's good enough to win even when they've had like division wins it's always been unimpressive teams so just get that out of the way as a, as a uh, owner, he's the worst of the bunch from an on-the-field perspective. All those other guys I've talked about have at least made a Super Bowl. Or, in George Marshall's case, he won two championships back before there was a Super Bowl. Uh, Snyder, not even close. So... (laughs) Next, we're going to talk about his dozens of controversies that have happened, uh, including recently he's been accused of defrauding the owners. So basically you get TV rights and those TV rights are supposed to be shared amongst the league. So big markets can't screw over little markets. But what he's done is he's taken revenue that's from TV and said that it's coming from the stadium, the stadium, the gate is supposed to all go to the team, which is why there used to be this dumb rule, which I think might still be around, but for a while there's a really dumb rule that if the stadium didn't fill out or sell out, you wouldn't be able to watch it in that local market. It was a kind of way of like, like getting people to go to the game, even when you had crappy, crappy teams. And he would try to sell, like there were some times where he's try to sell tickets for $5, people wouldn't go. This was one of the most loyal fan bases in all of football. And now they just can't take it anymore. And he can't give his tickets away to go to his aging stadium to watch his terrible team. So he cheats and pretty much says that the money that he's getting from revenue from TV is actually money he was getting from the gate. So he can try to keep it. Wow. Um, uh, In 2018, five former cheerleaders say that they were sexually harassed and intimidated during a swimsuit shoot calendar that I think was in um, uh, Costa Rica. Um, They had to shoot topless or be in body paint, even though those photos weren't used for the calendar. Ew. And while they were doing it, sponsors, not like people who weren't a part of the calendar at all, sponsors were there to just gawk at them. They were pretty much just like paid to be looked at. Ew. Um, in 2020, 15 more women came out and accused Washington of a hostile work environment and sexual harassment. Basically, what they said is that these were cheerleaders who were like pretty much... Pimped out to flirt with sponsors and like kind of sell themselves in order to be part of a part of business deals. And uh, they say that Snyder himself wasn't part of it, but he knew about it and that he fostered that. Now, everybody was fired immediately, but this is something, a culture that went on for years. So that's just a couple examples. Um, he's being investigated, or he was investigated by Congress the last few years. Um, He's it's funny. He didn't grow up with money, but he definitely acts like a spoiled brat. The best quote I heard about him was that he acts like what a little kid thinks a rich person should act Mm. like. And he's recently been like, I know information about the league that'll blow everybody away. Kind of like as a threat because everybody wants him to sell the team because he's such an awful person. And I'm scratching the surface on his on his scandals there. Like I said, are Dozens of scandals of this guy just being, like, greasy, grimy, no good.
0: And how old is he?
1: Uh, he bought the team at 35, and that was 20 years ago, so now he's 55.
0: Mm. Is it, is it
1: Not that, Yeah, he took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> so now we're going to talk about... Um, Washington's logo. Because... Snyder has been kind of the de facto historian on why the team shouldn't change its logo, why the team shouldn't change its name. Eventually, they do because sponsors pressure them. Um, sponsors like FedEx say, "Hey, change the name, otherwise we're going to, you know, not be sponsors with you anymore." And when he released a statement saying that he was going to change the name, out of the people he listed, he put sponsors first. He puts sponsors, then the community, then fans as why he's changing the name. So it just shows you his priorities right there. Yeah. And that's another thing with owners. None of these guys make good decisions because they have to. They make good decisions because their bottom line is being threatened. Yeah. So he's the perpetuator of this um, story about Willie Dietz that we talked about earlier. Now, another interesting story about Washington was their logo. Um... Back in 1972, there was, was kind of the first time people were questioning the the name and everything like that. Um, uh, there was a group of 11 representatives from different Native American organizations who asked the Washington to change the name. They met with Edward Bennett Williams, and they wanted them to change the name because it was a derogatory racial epithet, which it is. Um, Edward Bennett Williams didn't do anything. He just called it a listening session for himself. Hmm. Now, that same year, what happens is that a gentleman named Walter Blackie Wetzel, who was the president of the National Congress of Native Americans and a chairman of the Blackfeet tribe, uh, convinces Washington to change their logo. So back in the day, you know, there was nothing on helmets. Then there was a spear with feathers on it. And then Vince Lombardi tells them to change that and put just an R on a yellow helmet. And then they add some Native American feathers on the back. Uh, Uh, Blackie Wenzel tells them to change it to a Native American warrior, and that logo that you see is probably an amalgamation of... Uh, Blackfeet chief named Two Guns White Calf. And this comes from that um, vanishing Indian myth that we talked about. Basically, Native Americans, it seemed like they were going to like die out eventually. And so what a lot of them did was to try to preserve their history is they allowed themselves to be photographed some actually even uh, filmed their own movies back when silent movies were a thing. Uh, they recorded Native American songs. Um, they tried to represent themselves the way they wanted to be represented, not the way white people would represent them. And one of them is this really cool picture of Two Guns White Calf, where he's standing with a proud face like that. Now this gets used as the as the Buffalo Nickel. So the Buffalo Nickel takes this image and uses it. Um, from about 1911 all the way up until the 1930s and rather than it Kind of be what they wanted people use it as this kind of oh look how sad it is oh they it's such a sad noble people yeah too bad they're not around anymore even though they are around anymore but that's not how people take it people take it as like you know this pitiful native american who fought this noble fights against civilization so sad so sad so sad now, that was kind of what was happening in the 1930s when Washington first used this image as the Boston Braves. Now, um, Wenzel comes back and says that they should kind of remake this logo. They remake this logo that's the kind of the two-guns white calf image, but not really. Um, it's, it's changed a little bit. And Wenzel does this because he wants to bring attention to Native Americans' plight during this time. This was the time when, like, um, uh, Alcatraz was taken over, and when uh, Wounded Knee was taken over by these Native American activists trying to draw attention to what was going on on reservations after years of pretty much government neglect. And... That was his intention, was that, hey, this logo on the nation's capitals team is going to draw attention to Native Americans and it's going to make people aware of what's going on. But that's not what Washington does. Pretty much what Washington does is that... Anytime anybody has anything to say about the team, they just bring up Wenzel and it's like, he says it's fine. He says it's fine. What do you have a problem with it? He says it's fine. And Wenzel, t- like, also, kind of, as he gets older, you know, was like... Yeah, they're great. Look how much they've treated me so well. And his family afterwards tries to use his influence in a way that'll like try to promote education about Native Americans and try to actually use Washington to help them. But his grandsons have kind of been like, no, they're just a bunch of pieces of shit. And they do not trust them whatsoever, particularly Snyder. Now, Snyder, let's see if I can find it here. In In there. in the 2014. So there's a few times when the name gets come up. It comes up in 1972. It comes up in 1992, which was the 500-year anniversary of Columbus. They protest outside the Super Bowl and ask them to change the name, and it was Jack Kent Cook as the owner. Uh, then there's been a few battles over the trademark of the name, and uh, that's gone back and forth, back and forth, and... Uh, finally in 2013 Snyder goes like I'm not changing the team You, I'm not changing the name there's nothing you can do to make me change the name blah 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 and what he tries to do to you know Assuage people's worries is that he starts the original Americans Foundation, which was supposed to be a charity service that would give to Native American causes. Right. And it starts off really big. Um, but then right after it starts, it's just declined with all its grants and donations every single year. And by 2019, it stopped donating altogether. So it was just a farce. It was just something to get people off of his back. That's all it does. And the same thing. With um, Snyder having Native American tribes perform at halftime and things like that. Now There's been some like good changes, like they've stopped wearing war paint and headdresses and all that garbage. But all that was never done with any sincerity. All that was just done so people would stop bothering him and so that he wouldn't lose any money. And what's interesting is that there's a huge lost opportunity here. So the Blackfeet, uh, uh, the earliest records I could find or the latest records was 2015. But they have a medium household income that's roughly about half of what the rest of the country is. Uh, They have educational problems just like the rest of the country. They used to be a, you know, a big time warrior tribe that had been pushed from the Great Lakes like a lot of other tribes and it settled in Montana and kind of the, the Rocky Mountains region, the northern Rocky Mountains region. But then slowly but surely they had been pushed onto a reservation that's pushed up right in the middle uh, of the Canadian border that used to be, uh, I think it's Glacier National Park, but of course the federal government pushed them off of that. So now they just have a very small uh, part of the country with only about 17,000 people on the reservation again, half the medium household income problems with uh, education in comparison to the rest of the country while the Washington football team and Dan Snyder are both worth about $5 billion. So there's an opportunity here that is completely missed by Snyder. If he wants to keep the Native American iconography and the logo and all that, not the name, we already talked about that, not the name, but if he wanted to keep that and if he wanted to keep them as what he grew up watching, and if he wanted to do that, then he could have put all of his money where his mouth is and invested it in. The blackfeet nation and actually done stuff like have people from the blackfeet nation one perform at halftime have sideline tickets educate your fans about them have your um, stadium your new stadium that he wants to get be decorated with native american art and most importantly the blackfeet nation have a bank it used to be called the blackfeet nation bank but now it's called the native american bank have that be on your stadium not FedEx Native American Bank this would give them a huge asset worth probably hundreds I mean, tens of millions of dollars that they could actually use and actually Uh, improve their lives rather than just grabbing iconography from them or grabbing a guy that's helped you with your logo 50 years ago, just so people get off your back, just so you can improve your bottom line. Cause none of this is done with sincerity. None of this is done with respect to native americans. None of this is done in any way other than to improve the lives of a 50-year-old telemarketing guy who just wants to go from 5 billion dollars to 6 billion dollars.
0: Yeah. Like you can you can tell it wasn't done with sincerity. Like I remember when they finally changed it, it was like, yeah, finally. Yeah. But, you know, it was this should have been done a lot sooner. Yeah. And I'm tired tired of people like using the like oh it you know it was different times back then and Mm -hmm. no, no no they have been like you were saying Ninety-two, They were out there like, yeah. hey, change the name.
1: And the funny thing is, is that those signs when they protested in 92 said, Jack can't cook, it's 1992, it's time to change uh, the name. Oh my
0: God. <laughs> yeah, we say, we say things like, oh, hello, it's 2023, like get the, with the times. Yeah,
1: people have been saying that for forever. Mm-hmm. And the book I was reading that addressed Native American mascots say that it's not a thing about why Native Americans have a problem with the name. It's that why are white owners so intransigent about Changed the name. Why do they need to have this name? Right. Why are they so um, stubborn about changing it? And it's because they want it. They see it as a as a object of possession. They see it as something that they can have, and that they have no reason to give up. And they have no reason to make their lives the slightest bit inconvenient for any reason that doesn't cost them money. And then once it did cost Snyder money, that's when he changed. Mm-hmm. So. The last problem is that now that they're the commanders, this kind of bland, nothing name, he didn't do what other people did and actually, like, ask the citizens what they would want to be called. Right. Um, just this bland, kind of nothing name. Now, Native American representation, whatever Native American reputation you, or education you could have gotten mm-hmm. um, is gone is just absolutely gone. Um, What you could have done if you wanted to put your money where your mouth is, is use your immense capital to improve the lives of just one nation. Nobody's talking about giving all your money to the uh, Native Americans across the country, but have this one nation that you have a legit connection to, raise them up, put them up and use your money to improve their lives mm-hmm. and educate your fan base about who they are and the struggles mm-hmm. that they face in the present. Yep. But the thing is is that costs the bottom line. And that's what we've seen with all These guys, the bottom line. It's a reason why George Preston Marshall didn't want to change or didn't want to integrate his team is because he had a southern fan base and he would isolate his southern fan base and lose the bottom line. It's a reason why Edward Bennett Williams, um, who spent a lot of money, didn't want to change the name because that would have been a branding issue after he had just gotten the trademark in 1967. So, it's the reason why Jack King Cook didn't want to change the name, and why he was one of the most extravagant, wealthy guys for himself, but not for other people. This wealth corrupts people. It takes away their humanity, Mm -hmm. in a way. And it makes it... It puts
0: them above everyone.
1: It puts them above everyone.
0: Like, they're in, like, no they're the of the 1%. And you know, that that takes them so far away. Yeah. from regular society and you know, it like elevates them in their mind. And like th- and it's so like no one needs that kind of money. No one person needs this insane amount of money. Like they'll never be able like he will never be able to spend that money.
1: No, it's impossible.
0: And if he does, it's on something dumb. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, like his new mascot, which was oh, uh, which was a hog that he um, that called... God, something stupid. Major Hog. Something dumb. Huh. Not Commander Hog, which would have made sense. Major Hog. I want to look it up. Anyway. And the, pro- the thing is, is that none of these guys came from money all these guys grew up either middle class or poor Um, you know like we said Jack Hank Cook was selling encyclopedias because his family was struggling during the depression none of them finished college Major Major Tutty yeah. Um, Ugly. One more quick aside just for that one. Then we're going to wrap this up. So the reason why it's Major Tutty and that it's a hog is because in the 80s, the Washington line was amazing and they were called the Hogs. So what Washington fans did, some Washington fans did, is they put on little pig noses and they put on Sunday dresses and they were the Hogettes. And they would dress show up to every game as the hogets. They would, you know, show their love for the team. And that's who suffers here more than anything, is the actual fans of the team. The people who spend hundreds of dollars that they don't have on jerseys, on tickets, on all this stuff that is only for the express reason of making one guy go from a billionaire to a multi-billionaire. And that's what we're going to see With all owners, pretty much, across all sports. And it's just got to stop. You you don't need that much money, and you are...
0: I mean, not just in sports, like, in any profession. Yeah. You should not be making absurd amounts of wealth that, like... That you'll never be able to... Like you, we, I can't even fathom that amount of money.
1: Yeah. You won't be able to spend it. Your kids won't be able to spend yeah. it. Your grandkids Why? won't be able to spend it.
0: It's, and the funny thing is, when you think about it, it's like, they don't have this money physically. Like They don't. Yeah. They're not going home like Scrooge McDuck style and, and diving, <laughs> diving into and, the thing. <laughs> diving in and like, oh, money no. and swimming around. Like, they don't. Like, this money is literally a concept of our imagination that we're making up.
1: Yeah. This it,
0: wealth that they that they in their mind that they have. Yeah. Is completely made up, it, and they have more of it. This 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 pretend money than, you know, ninety nine percent of people in the world.
1: Yeah, it's all invented wealth. Like I like I was just talking about how awful the team has been for twenty years. Are you really gonna sit here and tell me that team's worth five billion dollars? There's just no way. No, No, there's just no way. But it's what someone's willing to pay for it, which is why it's worth that much money. It's just crazy to me. me. Remember, he bought it for $800 million Mm -hmm. 20 years ago. So even with inflation, he's well doubled his money and made the product worse.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, <laughs> I think we should end.
1: I think so, too. Um, thank you for listening to that my. Was so great. Um, long-winded talk uh, about a team I'm not even that passionate for.
0: I, yeah, but it's really important to ta- to have these conversations and, you know, like, use, like, use plat- our platform, and especially because we we are a white couple, and we don't. We have no idea what it's like to be profiled because of the color of our skin. And so these conversations need to be talked about and like, just be a better person. Do your research, you know, like do your research, make friends outside of your race. Yeah. Get to know people outside of your community. Try. That are different from you. Like.
1: Just try. It's
0: not that hard, you know. Um. But yeah, it's, it's important that we have these conversations and that we address things, you know, that's how things change. Um, but thank you for listening and thank you for doing all that research. That was amazing. And I learned a lot and I don't even like football, <laughs> you know, but that was, that was a crazy ride and it was fun I, to listen
1: to. I tried to make this as little X's and O's and, you know, football as possible. I, I tried to touch on kind of the bigger stuff for this one.
0: Yeah. And it, it really showed. You did a lot of great work.
1: Hmm. Thank you. Thank you, beautiful. I love you. I love you too, baby.
0: And we love you. (laughs) (laughs) All
1: right. Thank you again, everyone.
0: Do something nice this week for someone else.